Hey everybody, it's John. I wanted to remind you that we do have a Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash alien minute. Over there on Patreon, Mitch and I discuss subjects concerning movies and television and just about anything else we want to talk about. So uh, if you want to come over there, you can subscribe for $2 a month for one episode or $5 a month for every episode at patreon.com forward slash alien minute. Thank you. Welcome back to 007 by 7 the podcast where we are investigating the James Bond films seven minutes at a time. I'm John Engel. And I'm Mitch Bryan. And today we begin with Bond inspecting his briefcase and end with him driving up to see Miss Taro. In between, Bond has a nasty encounter with a tarantula, discovers the files on Dr. No are missing, puts the moves on an overly inquisitive secretary, makes plans with Felix and Quarrel to go out to Crab Key, and finds himself invited up to Miss Taro's place in the mountains. So action-packed seven minutes, and joining us today is artist and author Andy Parks. Uh, Andy's graphic novel was the basis for the current Netflix hit Extraction, and Andy's written uh, for a variety of, of uh, both original content and uh, characters like Daredevil and the Lone Ranger, Green Hornet. We're glad to have you here. Welcome, Andy. Thank you, guys. Thanks for having me. Are you a man of many hats or a man of one hat? <laughs> I, I do own too many hats. Uh, I, I typically say I have about 30 felts and about 20 straws, you know, swap out seasonally. But that's probably conservative. My wife would say there are a few more than that. Uh, everybody can spot you at most comic conventions by just looking for the hat, right? And every now and then, like, you know, I'll take mine off. I'm at a restaurant or something, and somebody at the convention will walk by and then give me a look like, I don't know. I don't think I know that guy. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I got to ask you, how long had it been since you'd seen Dr. No? Many years. So I came to Bond, my friend of mine in high school, who we had a love of comic books in common. And these are the days when you would get a rental VCR from your whatever version of Blockbuster you had in those days. So we would every now and then rent a VCR and a collection of tapes and he was really into Bond and Dirty Harry. And I wasn't especially a big fan of either, but we would go over to his house and watch these things. I distinct, I didn't remember this one as much. I remember Donald Pleasance very much. I don't even know what movie that is. <laughs> you only live twice. Yes, yeah. okay. And uh, I remember um, the I Expect You to Die, Mr. Bond, whoever, whoever that is. That, is that Blowfield? It's Goldfinger. Okay, okay. So this one was not, a, when I was watching it yesterday, it felt pretty fresh to me. Well, I'm really looking forward to not only getting your take on the minutes, but I, I want to talk about James Bond as a hero, you know, because I know that you ha write a lot of, like, hero stories. I mean, Extraction being a perfect example. And I just wonder where he fits in this sort of, if it's a pantheon, yeah. where is he? Well, I was kind of thinking about that yesterday. Um, somebody asked me what kind of stuff I write a few months ago. And the best I could come up with is I write damaged but redeemable guys who do violence. And Bond doesn't, he, his damage, he may be damaged, but at least in these early films, we don't see it. 
And maybe that's why I didn't relate to him very much. He's too, he's too smooth. He's too good. He's too perfect. I never get a sense that, oh my God, this guy is really fighting his demons in these, in these stories. So you've not read the books then? I have not. Does because that come he's out more super in damaged in the books? Mm. And he is, he's constantly on the brink of, of cracking up or giving up or walking away from it all or oh, drinking wow. himself into oblivion. Uh, and at, at times he's, He's he's a bit of a whiner. I mean, not to anyone. It's all internal monologues. But he's he's very um, broken, and they kind of start moving toward that with the Daniel Craig, James right. Bond incarnations. There's a, and, but in a way they go in this other strange direction, which is almost mock mythic, versus just human. You know, right. I've always been a little bit of a skeptic about Bond, maybe for those reasons, and. I, I said in a bitchy, catty way that you guys will forgive me for, I hope, a couple years ago on Twitter. I said there's only like two and a half good Bond films overall. And most of those are, are Casino Royale because I really like that one. <laughs> yeah, Casino Royale is great. And, it, and it's, a, it's, it's such a strange mix of going back to a book that they never got to adapt and then having to remind the audience they're watching a James Bond movie while turning around and trying to reinvent it all at the same time. Right. So it's a really complex movie, I think, in that sense. But here with Dr. No, it's the, it, in, for all intents and purposes, it's the first James Bond adventure that most of the public saw. And so it's an introduction to this guy. And you're saying he's a little flat. Yeah. I mean, I mean he's appealing. There's no denying that. I just... I tend to like the guys who wear their flaws on their shoulder a little more prominently. Well, I think there's even in this in this particular block of minutes speaking to that idea. I think there is a moment of frailty, but I'm not sure if Connery was in on it or we'll get to it when we get there. But sometimes Connery's performance, I think, undercuts what they might be going for with that. And I think that's why you know, I'm not sure if we'll ever get to where we're talking about the Daniel Craig movies uh, episodically like we are uh, the Connery movies. But that's where I think Craig is such a great casting for Bond because even take you know set aside the writing or the filmmaking at all, his just his face to me tells me he's wounded. He's right. just got one of those faces where once he appears on screen, I can imagine he's had he's gone through some shit, you know. Hmm. So Connery does not, does not have that at all to me. He's a different kind of Bond. But here in in this minutes when we get there, we'll talk about it. But there's a moment where he could have shown a little more weakness than I think he does. So when we start these minutes, um, in the book, he had been delivered a fruit basket and he discovered that there were these tiny pinpricks and all the pieces of fruit. And he'd sent that. I don't know whether he sent it through the diplomatic pouch or where, but he sent it to be analyzed. And every piece of fruit apparently had enough cyanide in it to kill a horse. So I think it's really funny that the first thing he does is smell his vodka. Yeah. Like, I don't know whether that's a tip of the hat to like they might be trying to poison me or or not. But. I, does cyanide smell like, is that the one that smells like almonds? Maybe. And I wonder, what did you guys get out of that moment? Because I got, my assumption was he didn't really smell anything, but oh, screw it. I got another bottle in the drawer. I'm not going to risk it. Right. I think that's what I got too, because yeah. I don't know what, I, I think we would have made a bigger thing out of it if he'd actually smelled something. But right. that said, it's still like, I mean, what do you smell on vodka? Right. I can't, it's just like, anything. <laughs> smell like bitters, I guess. So my question was, well, first of all, the very first thing we see, we touched on it a little bit in the last episode. He, he spots fingerprints on his uh, um, ingeniously rigged uh, briefcase with the talcum powder. And he doesn't care, right? Like, that's exactly what Connery's face reads. He goes, hmm, 
Okay, so there's fingerprints. So it doesn't seem like it's really a big deal. He kind of expected somebody to be messing around. But then, of course, that would give him the idea somebody's been there, thus smelling the vodka. And you're right. I think he's just being careful. But my question is, why so uh, cavalier with the ice then? Because <laughs> to me, <laughs> I, would be, I would be worried yeah, about that ice. You're totally right. True. Exactly. He would should have just drank it straight. But I guess he's really hot because he puts that well, ice in there and we see him put it against his forehead. So. Ask the valet for some more ice. I mean, somebody will bring <laughs> you some ice. Somebody, that's my other question. I don't know if either of you, I didn't grow up in a house of, of drinkers. But, you know, especially in the 60s, 50s, 60s, a lot of films have these mini bars. Uh, we just, Mitch and I just watched The Graduate recently, and there's a scene where just Murray Hamilton just opens up a bucket and there's ice ready for him, and they haven't even been home. You know, I always wonder, where's this ice coming from, and right. how is it still intact? So my assumption is the valet brought the ice in. Earlier we saw some limes, I think, too. So it'd be pretty easy to get more, but also that would make it pretty easy for them to, to do something to it. You know, if right. you had a compromised uh, employee of the hotel, which... It's kind of a common trope, I think, in spy movies. But, uh, yeah, I, w- I wondered immediately. Again, here's Mitch. We've talked about Bond isn't that thorough of a detective. He always seems to be missing one point of, of detail where he, well, I'm being careful about the vodka, but who cares? The ice is probably fine. Well, the ice could have been the thing, you know. Well, at least the he didn't ice. put a lime in it. Clearly, he's not, uh, not going to make himself any kind right. of a drink or, or a martini. Right. No shaking in this case. He's just, no. he's just pouring it over the Rocks. ice. By the way, this is getting far afield a little bit, but I love, uh, my wife and I both love mid-century stuff. So my favorite thing, especially about their early bonds, is all the production stuff. I love the sets and all that stuff. Um, But I also really dig when people check into a hotel back in these days and just the mechanics of how everything worked. The guy hands you a key, I guess, when you come in and you have a little (laughs) message box, you know, and it's it's just all so different. It's very full service compared to what we're used to. Yeah, yeah. It's and it's it was very luxurious I think even at the time, you know. Mm-hmm. I think people were I think there was a real pleasure in that. Was Smirnoff top shelf vodka at the time? Yeah. Definitely yeah. so. This was the a very common uh not that I'm a, a big reader of Playboy or anything, but I do remember old Playboys having lots of Smirnoff ads, sometimes with Woody Allen. I remember Woody Allen's Smirnoff ads, which is very bizarre to think about now. But you'd get a lot of Broadway celebrities or comedians or TV celebrities uh, advertising Smirnoff. Yeah, I think it was – there wasn't a lot of vodka at the time in America, I don't think. It was just right. now – Right, that's what I was, was going to say. It was before there was a $40 option. You know, there, there weren't right. craft vodkas and so on. No, not at you all. You probably went no. in and you had McCormick's and you had Smirnoff, and there not a lot in between, bro. Well, I remember it having blue and red labels. Yes. One was 100 proof and one was 80 proof. I don't remember which was which. I think the blue's the 100 proof, and it's still true, I believe. I think there's still a red and a blue. Well, then there's also Smirnoff, whatever you can think of, kind of variation. Of course, all the fruit uh, maceration versions of it and so on but with all of these different vodkas out there when's the last time you had some smirnoff i haven't had smirnoff in years i don't drink vodka man i gotta say i don't vodka that was something i drank when i was in high school you know because it would you couldn't taste it on your in your soda or whatever but i (laughs) i'm not a fan i like i like liquor that tastes like something yeah we we put it in something every now and then we we always have a bottle from costco in our freezer just to have it on hand, but yeah, don't. Yeah, I know that. Andy's a uh, you're a you're a brown liquor man, aren't you? I am. Yeah, 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 yeah. Me too. Well, he sits down and relaxes in this horrible, I guess, heat 
um, puts the glass against his forehead and we have this sort of quiet moment that leads us into the next sequence um, or scene with uh, with the tarantula and in, in the book it's a centipede and I always wondered like how in either case how does how do they know this thing's gonna bite him well I did a little research I was struck by that you know when we were kids I think we're all I don't know close to middle age anyway um, Tarantulas were very scary, right? In every horror movie. But then in the last 20 years or so, I thought I'd been led to believe that tarantulas weren't that deadly. They're not. So I Googled it today, and that it seems that's the case. They're not very deadly. But I also, I, I added Jamaica to the search, and centipedes did come up. So I think uh, maybe he'd done enough research to know that if, if he wants to get threatened by a bug in Jamaica, it should be a centipede. And they probably just didn't think that was very cinematically frightening well it's funny when you read about all the accounts of them doing the stunt you know or bob simmons letting this thing crawl across his arm there's just abject terror in everybody's <laughs> retelling of this story and i did try to figure out how do i square that against all the people who have pet tarantulas and let them walk around on their hands yeah, how do you square it with alfred molina for christ's sake the guy had like 500 of them on his back in raiders <laughs> right. of the lost ark and That's true and and they had figured things out a little bit better. They knew how to wrangle them a little bit. They they learned the one thing I remember from the Raiders' Lost Ark story is that they learned how to get it to how to get them to move. You just get males and one female. Put the they put the one female on the top of Molina's back and put all the males oh, nice. uh, everywhere else, and they all start crawling. And that's something that they didn't realize on this production. They needed two tarantulas to get the effect they needed here because they had so much trouble getting the tarantula to move. Um, so on the Mitch, you sent me you sent me a clip of a book um that was sean's stunt double we're reading his account yeah so that was bob simmons because connery was not going to get near the spider (laughs) and the closest they did was get him to they kind of put the set on its side and put that piece of glass over him which is pretty obvious i suspect you spotted it didn't you with the yeah i saw something like yeah right yeah i I never dreamed of the sideways thing that kind of was mind-blowing so he's standing is what we're saying. Like the bed is upright, like a Murphy bed, but um, you get what I mean on the wall. And he's standing with the blanket up on him because sideways, they would, did they strap him to the bed? I was trying to figure out what that meant sideways, but he's just standing there pretending that he's laying down with the camera. Well, I think they had to get the tarantula so it would go, so it would move, right? So that mm-hmm. means what it's, it's the glass has to be at a, has to be flat over him, right? Yeah. So you'd have like a sitting. Yeah, he's sitting up, so I think they had to angle him in the bed so that they could put the glass flat and level across the top of him. It seemed like a lot of hassle for the animal I was had learned in recent years wasn't very deadly. I, yeah. <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> I think this actually, the sequence, if you want to call it that, this moment and the way it's constructed actually works really well, except for the one moment where Connery moves. That's the, That was the giveaway to me. I remember, Mitch, I think it was a few, a few months ago I was watching this. And I sent you some screen caps like, what's going on here? This is kind of, I, I, I kind of bought it until he moved. And even when it crawls onto the pillow, it looks pretty good to me. Mm-hmm. Why did he move? And why did they use the take where he did? Because that's such a dead giveaway. As soon as his body moves and the tarantula doesn't move with him, it's over. I'm, this, the moment's Yeah, you're broken. right. And it's weird because I remember watching this on like VHS 
and the glass was really concealed just because of the quality of the transfer. So with every generation of a new transfer from 2K to 4K, you know, all it does is make the glass even more apparent. You know, there's a point at which you kind of want to say, stop, you know, stop yeah. over scanning it because it just makes it trickier. But you're right, John, that's the giveaway that he moves in a way that wouldn't make any sense. Right. Otherwise, like I think the, it's sold pretty well. you like well. the flop sweat? I love that Connery's face like, is just drenched. I did, like I did, and I thought, I thought he, his face, like I really believed that he was freaking out because he was. Yeah. <laughs> he, he was. I, I have to read this from the book. I, I can read this because uh, it's in the public domain in Canada, and I'm, I'm recording in Canada right now. Uh, but uh, God, it was turning towards his groin. Bond set his teeth. Suppose it liked it warm there. Supposing it tried to crawl into the crevices. Could he stand it? Supposing it chose that place to bite, Bond could feel it questioning amongst his first hairs. It tickled. The skin on Bond's belly fluttered. I mean, this is crazy, the way that <laughs> Fleming describes this. And he's so terrified it's going to bite him in the balls. Right. Yeah. And, and this is a centipede, not a spider. Yeah, this, is a ce- this is a centipede in the book. Yeah. yeah. So maybe that's creepier. I don't, I don't know. It's got to be a big centipede. I'm just guessing that Fleming must have... Uh, you know, crushed a centipede or two with his shoe and in, in Goldeneye at some point. I bet that this is some kind of real something. He's some real fear he had. I think there's no doubt because when he says that he he says Bond hit it, it burst open yellowy. Yeah, and so you know it's probably like yeah, he's he knows what happens when you smash one when you with your shoe. I'm glad we were spared the sight of him smashing some kind of fake tarantula on camera. Yeah, what do you think today would happen? Do you think we'd see it? Yeah, yeah, I think they'd cut to an effect. Yeah, yeah. 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 I like, the by the effect. way, excellent work by Sean's toupee when he smashes the spider. That hair really flops down over his face in a very convincing way. Does it really? Way. Yeah, oh, how yeah. funny. Oh, what's and that? Not in it's a weird. bad, like, he's wearing a rug, but the, but his you know, the locks. Like, yeah. Whoosh, yeah. Yeah. Okay, because uh, we haven't talked about that at all yet, have we, Mitch? I think this is the only bond where he's not wearing a toupee, right? I think he's I think got he a little was... appliance, a little extra really? something. Because I, I heard. He's got a little help. I had read somewhere that this was the only one that he was, he knew it was going, he was worried about it, but they hadn't, it wasn't quite bad enough yet to do anything about, but I, that could be, who knows? That could be I powerful. do know that they had not manicured his eyebrows and yeah. that they decided, um, I think after From Russia With Love, that they needed to start manicuring his eyebrows because his eyebrows are really, really pronounced. <laughs> I think so. He's 32. I did a little research on this. I'm always curious about how movie stars confront their baldness. And uh, I think he needed a little help from the time he was like 28. Um, unless he was playing some, you know, slick back guy. Okay. So I would guess there's a little. It's funny. I just watched a Dick Van Dyke episode the other day where we get to see all of Alan Brady's rugs. <laughs> right. laid out. All his rugs. Yeah. yeah. All the <laughs> so I think Sean's got the one over here that just mainly has a tuft here and a little <laughs> lock that can hang down. It's better than uh, Bruce Willis's Hudson Hawk. You remember, <laughs> if you remember that, he had it was like two, two million dollars in the budget for his uh, hair touch-ups or whatever yeah. it was. Well, they were giving Captain Kirk help from the very beginning too, yeah. weren't they? No yeah. doubt. Yeah. Yeah. And Jimmy Stewart, I mean, he, I think he's got a rug much of his later career. And, oh wow! Uh, they're usually I didn't know good. that either. Yeah. Wow, you just blew my mind there <laughs> a little bit. I didn't, I didn't know that about Jimmy. <laughs> And Astaire, wow. of course, always had a little help. Yeah. Sorry, I should stop. I'm ruining childhood. <laughs> we could go on and on. <laughs> but it must have been liberating for Connery that, you know, whatever picture it was that he just decided 
this is it. You right. know, I'm not going to have to put the toupee on. I don't know whether that would have been Robin and Marion or. Wait, does he have Anderson Anderson tapes? What Anderson tapes? He's still got a toupee. Yeah, on. that's right. Yeah, he does. I'm sure. trying to remember. When does what is he baldish in Man Who Would Be King? Yeah. Yeah. That, that that period where he did all three yeah, of those yeah. movies, Wind and the Lion, Man Who Would Be King, and, and uh, Robin and Marion, he was pretty much, yeah. here it is. And he <laughs> looks great. But he does look great. I get it. You don't probably want that for your Bond. I get it. Yeah, he didn't win World's Sexiest Man when he had hair. <laughs> right. You know, That's he true. won it when he was bald. <laughs> it's, I think he must have figured that out. Hey, we didn't answer your original question, Mitch, about how did they know. I think there's more to the question of how did, he, how did they know it was going to bite him um, also, how did they get it in there? Are we to assume that it was through the open window? We get the sound of crickets and outdoor sounds as we cut into this scene. And uh, I think it tells us that the window's open, correct? Don't you think? Is that what he did? He just didn't, just kind of pushed it through the window? Because that's pretty far know. away. <laughs> I think he came all the way in, probably. The real question is, is like, where do, you, do, you, do you have to wait until Bond is asleep? Is that what we're suggesting? Because he's, he's awake when he's... When they, they cut to him in bed and he's rolling over, so he's awake. So has he ever even fallen asleep? Right. I don't. This is confusing to me because I do not see Dent as the kind of guy who has the balls to go into that room. Right. I think he's going to do it in the most cowardly way possible, which is just like put it through the window right. and, it, and hope it gets to the and bed. hope it gets to him. <laughs> but him going into that room, man, that would be. I almost want to see that scene because I want right. to see how terrified he is. Yeah. And and then it reminds me then. What they do later with in uh, um, You Only Live Twice, where we actually get, we see the ninja in the rafters with the string and the poison dripping down the string. You know, I like to see that kind of thing. All of that makes sense. It's getting closest. You know, unfortunately, of course, the girl's the one that rolls over and takes the poison in that moment. You know what I'm talking about, right? Well, this is that whole thing about the relationship between suspense and surprise, which the Bond people were not quite figuring out because there was even this whole business with Goldfinger where um, all of the gadgets were supposed to be a surprise and then supposedly Guy Hamilton said no 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 we really either he or Maybaum or somebody said no no we have to set all this stuff up so that the audience will be waiting for it Mm -hmm. and if you look at both um, this and From Russia with Love they're still kind of trying to figure out that suspense versus surprise formula for James Bond films and so in a later Bond film we probably would see yeah Dent bring that spider yeah. in and put it in as Bond is asleep. And my, my assumption was probably even sillier than yours, John. I, I pictured him just coming in earlier and leaving it in the sheets, which doesn't I guess the tarantula wouldn't just sit still and wait for right. Bond to show up. So oh no, you would definitely to. see it like apparently tarantulas also can move the sheets around in an yeah. extremely visible <laughs> right. way. It almost looks more like there's a, a kitten under there or something <laughs> the way that thing's moving the blanket around. But uh, yeah, I I thought about that too, but I really don't. Th- yeah, I didn't think that there was really any way that would be the least certain way. Right. He would probably find it before it was a danger to him. I just thought that it was kind of telling us they were kind of telegraphing to us or hinting right. to us. They definitely cut. Hey, that, that window's window. open. Yeah. That's how it got in. I don't yeah. know. It actually crawls off of him. Meaning, was it really that dangerous? Because it's not. I mean, nowadays we would have definitely gotten some mandibles or something, right? We would have gotten a close up of, of some mandibles about to bite, and then he knocks it off of himself or something. Yeah. It's kind of docile, actually, because it crawls off of him, and then He's he knocks just it take away. A nap right next I, to him. <laughs> he just wanted to sleep up by his head, um, <laughs> so he knocks it off and jumps down and um, smashes it with his shoe or slipper. And with this incredible Mickey Mousing of the score, which I yeah. think dum, actually really. Dum, dum, dum. 
I like it. I actually think it works. <laughs> I think that's what you're doing internally when he's doing that. I think, I, right. you know, I'm kind of going, yeah, smash it. So it works uh, in a real basic sort of uh, film score way. Not in a John Barry way. It not in a John. In a Amani Norman way. <laughs> yes, Amani <laughs> Norman. Never, we're not going to have that kind of Mickey Mousing again in most no. of John Barry's scores anyway. No, but it works fine here. Um, but then Connery's reaction, and Mitch, we'll talk about this in relation to the book, because I don't think you quite got there in the uh, your reading from the book. But he, after smashing it, he gets up, he puts his hand on his stomach, and casually walks off to the bathroom with a mildly upset look on his face. Where in the book, he goes and vomits. like He ran. He said Bond dropped the shoe and ran for the bathroom and was violently sick. So he was afraid he wasn't even going to make it to the... John before he barfed. Wow. This looks like he's going to go pop in a, an Alka-Seltzer in a glass of water. I mean, this does not look like a guy who... He does. He's a little tummy trouble. He's like, whoa, whoa. That, maybe there's something in that ice I had earlier. Um, but he goes... So this is where I wonder, and I think this is what I said to you. I think we talked about this a while back, Mitch, and I said, I just don't think Connery would play it the other way. I don't think Connery, in, the, in this stage of his career at least is going to run off and vomit into a toilet on, on screen. So I wonder if this isn't a Connery kind of moment or, or why they made the choice to even have this moment if it's not going to be played out the way it was in the book. Because I don't even... I mean, you had to tell me that's what happened before I read the book. Yeah, you had I didn't to tell really me that's even that. happened. I had no idea. Right. You didn't see it either, Andy? No, I, I thought he just... I, it didn't occur to me he went to the bathroom. No, I didn't think about it. All right, interesting. Just saw, like, oh, that was unsettling. And then, who knows, went to get another vodka or something. Well, he goes into the bathroom, but huh. he doesn't close the door. Well, since I'm up, I might as well go yeah. hit the head. <laughs> that's, why, that's what he did, yeah. <laughs> that's it. Um, so, um, from that moment, we cut briskly to the next morning, and as Bond is, or Bond is briskly walking into the room to see Plato Smith and um, discover that among other things, the files are, are missing. So this set is the, we've talked about this before, but just to be clear, this is the casino set redressed. And you can tell by the steps. So that space was, once again, Ken, Ken Adam was reusing everything that he could to save money however they could. So it's definitely on the stage at Pinewood. Uh, so Bond uh, is requesting these files and Miss Taro comes in and says that she can't find them. Now, I just want to get clear on the chronology. So Strangways took the files from there and yep. took them home to Miss Trueblood and then kept them there? Like yep. he stole the files? Well, I mean, uh, Miss Taro there seems to have been the one to give it to him, probably. She was very ready with that information that he was the one that had them. So I'm oh, guessing she does say she says I gave them to Strangways. Yes, well, he asked who had them last, and she said Strangways had them last. Right, right. So she must have been the one to give them, him the files. So that could tell us. I didn't even think about that till this moment. That could tell us how they knew to go deal with Strangways. Uh, he's got Doctor No's files. She tells Doctor No, or whoever she tells whoever who tells Doctor No, and we commission the three blind mice to go take care of business because they can't. We can't be having that file in the hands of a guy who's been to Crab Key, whatever, uh, who's investigating us. As long as the file's at Government House in its place and not being read by anyone, it's fine for now. But now that we know it's out of the out of the bag, 
Let's go kill good, them. Good move lending your files out to agents <laughs> to carry around. I mean, isn't that crazy? <laughs> yeah. It's I'm my question was why would she is it advantageous for her as a double agent here? I guess we could kind of call her a double agent, right? Um, to even fess up that she knows where the files are? Wouldn't she just say, I don't know, or that it's a mystery? Or uh, why would she tell them Bond? And like, why would they? Isn't she just adding to the suspicion by saying that they're worth Strangways? But maybe she just doesn't realize Bond's on the case? I don't know. It's a little, again, this is where some of the investigative stuff becomes confusing to me and where I'm not sure they thought it through completely. But do you guys read well, this Strangways differently? Or is had it, them. She's leading, that's a dead end at least, right? There's no next step for Bond to take. Well, except I guess he would know that it was suspicious. Okay, okay, if he had him last, but we went to his house and they weren't there, then Dr. No can be more of a suspect in the case, I would think. Mm, maybe. Uh, I'm just not sure. Maybe she's just not that privy to what Bond is up to, to know to lie about it. But um, Mitch, do you have what? more to add to this? What, well, what could have been in the files? That's what I was wondering. Is there, is there news too. about radioactivity or what do we, what do we think? Because, yeah, nobody knows that Dr. No. I, again, this is where I get really, I kind of get baffled by what Dr. who Dr. No is, what people know about him. And uh, if if they have a file on him, it's probably pretty benign. It, otherwise, everybody would know he's our, a villain already. Right? Yeah, right, right. So, <laughs> so the, probably they should have left the file behind instead of taking them after they killed those two people. Yeah. Or take if there's one pertinent bit of information in there, take that out. But leave uh, anyway. Right. I this is where I just don't think that it was all that well thought out. It's just. Well, what's yeah. so fun about this is this is all the movie makers. You know, there's yeah. none of this in the book, so they're all just trying to find extra obstacles and extra things for Bond to have to do before he goes out to the island. Right. And it's funny to see how all of this is being constructed to kind of keep him running around a lot, uh, and not really doing much really yet i remember by the way i remember when that moment came on when we first heard his name i said to my wife oh well, that's a normal name it's not a supervillain name at all no, no. <laughs> there's, there's a guy named dr no <laughs> fine <laughs> yeah <laughs> although strangways could be a pretty good villain yeah it's true so I, I don't know it's like everybody's got these crazy names I, I don't think there's that much information that we really get at this point except that bond's given a little a little a little box that came in the diplomatic pouch right. for him, right? Yeah, as a matter of fact, the exposition seems a little redundant. I think didn't didn't Leiter kind of give us all this already? Uh, Pretty much. Except for the concentration camp part. Maybe that right. part's There's a little the, bit added. Yeah. Does anybody, I remember Jack Lord as being a giant. And so I was pretty annoyed when he showed up and he was shorter than Connery. But I looked online and that is supposedly true. I just thought from Hawaii 5.0 he was like 6.5 or something. Oh really? Yeah, yeah. I never thought of him as being. Maybe it's just tall. his giant face. He's got such a face. Well, yeah. you know how they do. I mean, uh, sometimes they'll place the camera when you have a star of something right, that's right. kind of short, a la Tom Cruise. Uh, they'll place the camera in a certain way. Sometimes they'll even build the sets in a certain way. Well, that's what I was sure they had taller. done when they first stand next to each other. I thought, oh, Connery's up on a box or something. But I don't know. The internet says Connery's six two. I guess who am I to argue? Yeah, he's he's pretty tall. That's funny because I was trying to think what other movie stars or TV stars that I think were tall. I definitely thought that Peter Graves and James Arness were tall. Yes, I think. And they I think were. that's part of why uh, John Wayne told his buddy Arness to go into TV. 
He said, they're not going to let you stand next to me on a movie set. You've got to figure out something else. <laughs> Is that true? Yeah, that's what I read once. You've heard that story? Oh, that's great. Uh, I love it. So you were talking about gadgets earlier, mentioned how there was this discussion about how to reveal them. Well, uh, Bond gets a gadget, I guess, in the diplomatic pouch. Um, not a very good one. <laughs> it's about so as basic I was, as trying, I was trying to put this in context. 62, I mean, how? what are we? 15 years, 16 years from dropping the bomb for the first time. 17, yeah. yeah. So radiation was still, it was very much a big kind of mysterious, dangerous force in the world at that time. It, it, yeah. it was, but it was also weirdly accessible because around that time was when my uncle was a biology teacher. And this is a horrible story, but they, they got a, a, a snake, a bull snake, and they got some radioactive isotopes and shot them into the snake and then tracked the snake around the school with a Geiger counter. Wow. Wow. Isn't that wild? That's that's pretty crazy. And I, I, I again, I stopped to Google my poor wife. We can't get through a movie without Maggie on. Hold on. I had to look up the, <laughs> the watch dial story that I had heard yeah, one yeah. time, you know, that people supposedly got cancer from licking the brushes when they applied that little bit of radium on those watch uh dials um oh. and he references that when he runs a geiger can over his yeah luminous yeah, yeah. um i did want to say though talking about the prominence of radiation in movies i mean it's a very cinematic thing it's it's in it's invisible it's an invisible force so it's it's ominous in that sense but it's easily detected by a stick that then has this building sound to it so it's very cinematic in that way because you could point a stick at something that seemingly is, is innocuous and this machine, this great sound effect will tell you it's dangerous, you know? And then if you move it, it tells you that part's more dangerous than the other part. It's such a great little device that you can use to very simply convey to even the youngest child it is. that it's dangerous, you know? That's, like I think that's why it held well, on so long. <laughs> Mitch's story blended both, but it's like the tracking right. device that ticks when you're closer, you know? Exactly. The tracking device kind of took over. Uh, in the 80s, kind of took over for the radiation, maybe. Micro changes um, in air density. Th thanks too, to right? Alien, yeah. Um, I didn't want to forget about, you know, before we leave the uh, government right. house, I didn't want to forget about the uh, diplomatic pouch, which every time they say it, I, I and I see the size of that box, I picture a uh, cartoonishly large envelope. I can't help it. When you say pouch, <laughs> I'm not thinking of a bag or a box. I'm thinking of an envelope. But um, I kind of didn't really know what that was. I, I guess it just never occurred to me to look it up and uh, and find. So for those of you out there that are as dumb as me that don't know what a diplomatic patch is, it's a container of some kind. It can be a crate. It can be a box, a bag, or, or an envelope that just contains diplomatically protected material. So the government can send uh, to an embassy uh, something that can't be looked at by the other government, by customs or anyone. And there's an interesting history of these. Do you guys know much about some of the nefarious things that have been done? There's no, been, no. What, what have they you found? Seen? Tell me. There was an Ecuadorian situation where I believe the Ecuador, someone in Ecuador tried to send a few kilos of cocaine to Italy, and the Italian government was able to detect it. Um, there's been weapons. I think there was a weapon. There was a land, or a, a, some landmines, or uh, maybe sea mines. Sorry sent to the Falkland Islands during that conflict by the British government, um, which I don't, I'm not sure if that makes sense. I read that, but then I thought about it. I was like, was, wasn't the Falklands their territory? Why would they have to send it via diplomatic? Anyway, uh, but the, the best one, of course, to me is, is 
good old fashioned uh, Winston Churchill getting Cuban cigars all through World War II. Uh, just the the British Embassy in Cuba just sending him cigars all the time. Nobody can uh, could detect that. Um, I'm not sure if they were illegal. I guess they were at the time. That, that's the story. Been illegal. I don't, I don't think, think so. But it's Why? Probably that might have been. I don't know what kind of rationing was going on. But oh, that's probably it. They were probably you're probably the importing situation was part of the rationing. I imagine. Yeah, you couldn't just have. Um, extravagant things sent to you at any given time if you're a citizen of the of England. But anyway, just wanted to mention that in case people have wondered what the diplomatic pouch is in this box that came in it. Well, and we don't get much more about that. So there's no briefing or anybody's going to have much fun with this yet. So I guess the audience has to just hope that they're going to find out what's in the box because... Oh, Bond what's in a, the box? What's in the box? So Bond's <laughs> about to leave and this is a really interesting turn. He decides he's going to go out the other door. Mm-hmm. And he whispers and, about it too. Yeah, he's yeah. he's like there's something shared between these. I mean, he's he's got there's a joy or a glee to to Connery's whispering to it. You know, it's it's interesting. Yeah, it's more fun than he's had during the entire picture right here. <laughs> right, and do we not feel other than the well, he's a, enough of a tough guy to win in a fight. Do we not feel that this is the first big Bond moment in a way? Like, we haven't really seen him seduce anybody yet. We haven't seen that bond that you know yet, I, I don't think. Other than, like I said, other than the tough guy stuff. He, he's he been with Sylvia, but she he picked yeah. Sylvia up at the beginning. But like we talked about, that felt a little bit more like North by Northwest than it did James Bond to me. That felt a little bit more yeah. like, oh, here, here's a couple of urbane um, consenting adults having a little uh, back and forth, where this feels like, oh, I'm going to manipulate... I'm going to manipulate a situation. I'm going to get into this sexually with someone in order to learn more. Because he knows, right. I think he knows something's up with her. I don't right. I don't know why else he would immediately go into this situation. Loaded for bear, too. He's immediately ready to uh, put her in her place. Yeah, he intimidates her. He, he Yeah. He, yeah, he's really um, condescending to her. He catches her doing what she's doing, and then he sort of takes this weird power trip and I guess he knows it's going to work to some degree because he knows she's working for the opposition. So yeah. I guess he feels like he's in a position of power to manipulate this thing any way he wants to, right. although he will have the tables turned on him. And and that is also visually given to us by their positioning. Yeah. Um, she could have been sta- at a standing position, kind of bent over into the keyhole. But now when he walks out, she's on her knees right in front of him. I don't think that's an accident either. Or we put her in the submission submissive posture right away and this is why i'm saying this is where that james bond i think starts the one that we know and uh the one that's kind of an unfortunate part of james bond to yeah me. but there's I, more to I, talk about with that yeah it's not these are not my minutes but i'm glad i don't have the next chunk because it's it's problematic at least yeah to say the least yeah um i, I want to say too before we get there that you know this is also that whole um yes no maybe business that was such a sexist cliche in in these older films you know that when a woman says no she means maybe and even though it's not phrased that way it it goes from i should say no but i'll say maybe or you know right. so it's like it, it so it's also a little uncomfortable these days to look at that kind of thing but what's funny is then after he walks out she watches him go in almost the same position as the desk clerk at the hotel mm-hmm that's my favorite bit about that scene was her behind those blinds looking all, you know, semi-sinister back there. Yeah, yeah. It's And it's it's interesting how Terrence Young just very shrewdly does these 
repetitions of things like the gun at the back and you realize there's a gun at your back before we see the gun you know that i mean he does this again with these two women they they have them both watch longingly as bond leaves and and in fact it's almost underscored by the fact that the next time he goes to the hotel to get his keys from that guy we don't have that mm-hmm. you know this the desk clerk is no longer leering at him because somebody already did right um you guys have talked about this i'm sure what kind of filmmaker was this guy before bond mitch well he had worked with uh, the producers before he had made some films that had done well and he had made some films that had not done well so he was definitely not in a position of um he wasn't on anybody's top list and in fact guy hamilton who directed goldfinger turned it down and there was another contemporary of theirs that had also turned it down so he was they were a little concerned about whether he could pull the movie off uh, on budget and whether he was worth box office worth anything at box office but um boy they they made the right choice with this guy certainly so what do we get he leaves there and do we cut to the dock yeah we go to the boat docks and quarrels boat where we get this awesome gadget (laughs) <laughs> the first the first James Bond gadget, a Geiger counter. I think I already made that joke. But, uh, yeah, so we're going to get this whole rigmarole about him reading the uh, radiation. Uh, this is the spot where Strangways put the rocks and all this stuff. So we, he's able to read the radiation with the Geiger counter. Um, and we get lighter. Lighter appears. Um, Mitch, why? Why does lighter come? I have no idea why Lighter is in this scene. He seems to do absolutely nothing except just show up again. And he even says, hi, guys. I mean, he has this really, you know, it's very Hey, what you looking for? Did you lose something? But I I will say that these compositions, these compositions of the three men in the frame, first remind me of Key Largo, which is all built in three people within frames. And Mm -hmm. it's, it's a magnificent aspect of that movie. But it also really reminded me of Johnny Quest. Oh. And I, I really kind of had forgotten how these first two or three movies were the template for the design uh, and the aesthetic of Johnny Quest, which is it's a good point. Yeah, skinny yeah. ties and suits and you know what I really hair. envied? I love those pants that actually sit up where men's pants should sit. You know, <laughs> up actually at your waist. You can't buy those anymore. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And Mitch, you know, you know, I'm a giant Johnny Quest fan. I love Johnny Quest, but I think another similarity in the scene, yeah. and to answer the question that, that we had about Felix Leiter, is just like Johnny Quest, I think this is actually a racially insensitive scene. And the reason why Leiter there is there, and this is not coming from me at all, but I just don't think they thought that. Quarrel was the kind of character that you could bounce this kind of exposition off of. I, mm-hmm. I think that's probably why Lighter's there, right. and I think it's a sad. I think it's a sad fact. They very easily could have played the scene out where uh, where Connery and Quarrel just have a two for scene, where he explains all this to Quarrel. Then he says, "We need to go over there." Then they have this conflict about it. Bond seduces him in some way, or convinces him in some way, negotiates some way to win the scene, and have Quarrel say, "Fine, I'll take you." But they bring Leiter in because I think they thought, well, he's going to have to talk th- tell this to the other, the other white guy. I hate to say right. it, but I think yeah. that is what what's happening here. Yeah, yeah. And it muddles the scene because to me, at the end of the scene, I we talk about the Mike Nichols that 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 Mike Nichols uh, credo about the seduction negotiation 
or fight. I don't think they successfully have any of that here because it's convoluted by the fact that Connery's looking over his shoulder at Leiter explaining stuff. Then we get Quirrell. Of course, there's also the, the it's a, there's a dragon there, which is really unfortunate moment too. Right. right. And, but I don't feel like he negotiates anything with Quirrell. Somehow Quirrell's mind just changes. Uh, is he guilt tripped? Right. Into no, that's it? a good point. And yeah. to put it in McKee terms, you know, some value has to change in the scene or it's not worth doing. And Coral's value does change, but we don't know just because he's peer pressured, I guess. But there's no real moment where Bond convinces him of anything. No, it's but maybe if you took the time, yeah. took lighter out of the scene, took the time and had them be a one on one interaction, you could have had that. I think they could have. Yeah. But unfortunately, Coral was kind of sold, sold short as a character here. Um, it would have been interesting to see it could have been a little twist of the character because we have had this kind of um, characterization where he's not necessarily given much in the way of like uh, obvious intelligence. He knows the stuff. He's street smart, but who knows if he knows. What if he did know something? Wow, that would have been interesting in the scene. What if it turns out he does know a thing or two about this stuff somehow or whatever? I don't know. To me, the, the scene kind of falls apart because I think they sold him short and lighter doesn't add anything to it. I just wondered, so is it purely an exposition show off the Geiger counter? Is that the whole reason that it exists in this? It's just to set the stakes right that we have to go to that island. It doesn't matter what people say about it. we got to go there. Yeah, and then Quarrel's resistance to going there raises the stakes more. So that could have played into the scene better than it does. I think this could have been more of a scene. I really do. I think it could have been more than exposition. And then we get the, it's kind of a sad foreshadowing if they play into it a little bit better as well. Sad foreshadowing that it's Quirrell's like, I don't want to t- uh, uh, test uh, tempt Providence twice. Then he's talked into doing it. Hey, you're a good guy. Go along with this. Somehow he's seduced into doing it. And then it does end up being his, his downfall. Right. Uh, but I'm not sure if that comes off. And if you turn the sound down and just watched the scene, you'd basically see the business with the Geiger counter. That's visual. You probably kind of figure that out. And otherwise, it's just these guys kind of stand in the same position from the beginning to the end of the scene. I mean, one guy joins the scene and then and then we're out. So there's there's nothing inherently cinematic about this thing either, no. which which makes me want to ask you, Andy, when you're writing graphic novels uh, or comic books do you find yourself thinking more cinematically or more like dramatically stagey or novelistically like what do you say you mentioned mckee so obviously you you can talk some of this talk in terms of that stuff i'm aware of those things like i'm always aware of what the scene is trying to accomplish and i i think of theme a lot and i think about how the scene will contribute to the theme the visual aspect doesn't come until it's time to put it on paper. I don't waste a lot of time with visuals when I'm thinking in my mind who's going to do what in this scene. But when it comes time to write it, I definitely have those pictures in my head. And that's just from decades of drawing comic books. I, I don't want to put it in the script unless I can think of a way to visualize it for the artist, just so I know it's possible. There's at least one way to do it. And two, I want to give the reader something to latch on to, you know, that's interesting. Um, I hate the idea of just two people, you know, mid shots standing around with a building behind them for two pages. I try to avoid that if at all possible. And at some point, um, like a movie, these things are very collaborative. Unlike a movie, there's really only two of us calling the shots typically. 
And in some way, you got to just throw yourself into your artist collaborator's hands and say, make this sing a little bit. Um, but I do definitely try to make mix things up and um, call for a little visual pizzazz where we can in a way that probably the scene we're talking about never bothered to. I think they're figuring, hey, look, there's water behind them. We're in Jamaica. Right. That should cut right. it. And it's a good weather day, right? Yeah. <laughs> so maybe it's one of those points <laughs> where they they're struggled like. struggled with that, yeah. Yeah, wow, we got a good weather day. We better put something, some of it in the movie. Um, yeah, so I don't know. So to, to drill down just one more level, because I'm just kind of curious, there would be a version where, let's say they were these guys are going to exchange four lines of dialogue back and forth. So there'd be a version where it might be one panel with, you know, four word balloons or something. Who de who determines whether that is what it is versus like four panels or? I always write the visual descriptions, the panel breakdowns and some clue as to what I want in the panel. Usually medium, long, close up, something like that. And maybe a little like, hey, Let's throw the boat into the foreground here so we get a little sense of the setting without doing a boring establishing shot. But every one of my scripts starts with a note to the artist that says, I'm gonna give you visual cues where I have them just so that to help you. But I wouldn't be working with you if I didn't trust you. So if you see a better way, run with it. Um, and usually I, every one in a hundred times, I may be unpleasantly surprised like, oh, that didn't fly like I kind of hoped. But almost all the time, the artist brings me something that's surprising in a good way. It's good to have that one final moment. Um, instead of the editing room, I like to have a final script pass where I can say, okay, here's what I had in mind. Here's what the artist gave me. And now these, these words that I thought were necessary have been conveyed by the acting in this scene that the guy drew. And now I can pare that down. Or this storytelling let me down in a way I hadn't anticipated. So I might need a little more verbal information here. It's good to have that one last chance to kind of tweak and fit things to the art. I think that, John, when you mentioned the sea and the boat or whoever said that, I think that's the other thing that's about this this scene that's interesting is that everything else in these seven minutes is in a soundstage. Yeah. So this is the one bit of location stuff that they had, and that's probably another reason they wanted to be sure to do this scene outside if they could because they were going to be inside on either side of it. I found myself thinking a lot about that during this movie. And again, trying to put myself in the context of 62 or three and how much less global the world was and how more novel it was for people to see Jamaica on the big screen like that. Um, and it's probably a thing that is hard for us to appreciate now um, because of the media we're drenched in constantly and because a lot of us have traveled more than people used to. But yeah, they must have loved being able to go to these relatively exotic locales and show them off to the audience. I, I can say as a little kid growing up in central Kansas, the travelogue aspect of movies was always something that was really interesting to me, and right. especially the Bond movies. I mean, that was always a chance to go somewhere that right. I certainly had never been and didn't know if I'd ever get to go there. And I, I am not looking. <laughs> it sounds like a big segue to get to my, let's talk about me for a while. But yeah, it's one of the big things that made Extraction a hit, I think, is that um, we initially wrote that project as a South American thing. And I think it's way more effective if it's in that part of the world, India, and those places where people still don't really know what those inner cities look like. It just makes it appealing. 
And it makes it different. Like, that's the other thing yeah. is that it was very, for me, it was fresh seeing it take place in this new environment. Right. You know, that was one of the things I liked about that movie. Was it, was it, did you know they were going to change it? Like, um, when did you find out? So the chronology of this whole thing, like 12 years ago is when I first met with the Russos. Um, they had a nugget of an idea and they came to my publisher and I got hooked up with them. And so we signed a deal where I would develop it with them. And then we'd go make a graphic novel and a film kind of based on the same outline, but different things. About six years ago, uh, the book came out, the graphic novel. And at somewhere in there, they wrote a screenplay and I didn't even bother to, I was like, I, I'm, I didn't read it, I didn't care. Finally, a few years ago, I read a draft and at that point it had moved and the uh, kidnapped victim had changed from a female to a male. So somewhere in those years, and I kind of know, do you guys want the Hollywood dirt on why it maybe changed well, the count? Yeah, okay. of course. So I, I think the Russos are savvy enough to know that in those intervening 12 years, We've seen more about South American crime lord stuff, drug lord, all that. So I think that was part of it. Another part was that Paramount initially licensed it, uh, optioned it. And at some point Paramount had it and they weren't going to make it because they wanted to make a, what's her name, Catherine Bigelow or C Catherine? Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. yeah. Uh, she had a movie set in that part of the world and they wanted to make that instead. And they wouldn't give us back our movie because they didn't want it to go out and compete with theirs. So at some point, um, our team that I wasn't really involved in, the movie team said, we're gonna move ours to DACA and that took care of the problem and so they got it back. And I think they realized that would be a better film anyway. Wow, that's amazing. <laughs> it's always, it's there's always these other <laughs> things that enter in. Yeah. And it was probably cheaper to make there too, I, I bet. I would I imagine. Would financially, yeah. there were some advantages there and, and so that, that also added and to And just that time. opening, you know, helicopter shot of the city, you just never see anything like that. I hadn't. Yeah. So it makes, it's exciting. I gotta ask, what, what were the, who were the Russos 12 years ago? They hadn't even <laughs> done any community episodes yet, had they? No, they had made uh, Welcome to Collinwood, which is kind of a fun Oh, movie. right comedy heist movie yeah i remember that one and they made you me and dupree which was not really them but you know kind of a uh, silly uh, romantic comedy thing and then they were when i met them uh, the the nights we were meeting to talk about at the time it was called ciudad we were meeting in not the scott brothers offices but in the offices next door so not scott free but whatever their other production company was that made commercials and stuff like that. And I think maybe their kids were involved in making this. We were meeting there. And I remember one day the Russos were a little late cause they'd been up uh, making a Taco Bell commercial the night before. <laughs> so they were, nice. they were scrapping along in TV. And that's what this whole project started is them trying to find a place in the action movie genre, you know, that would launch them into that world. And then who knew in between <laughs> it actually getting made, you know, they became the directors of the Avengers. The, the highest grossing film of all time yeah. they are directors of. It's kind of crazy. Yeah. You know, all these years, I would have, if you had asked me who directed you, me, and Dupree, I would have said it was the Farrelly brothers. I right. guess I was a little, yeah. <laughs> my yeah. memory of which brothers was a little off on that one. But that must have been really gratifying to have it be the number one movie on Netflix. I mean, it was crazy. That must... hey, so you go through this whole dynamic. They tell you a couple of years ago it's going to be a Netflix project. You're like, okay, that's not what I thought, but okay. And then somewhere along the way, Scorsese makes his movie on that platform. And 
the Coen brothers make their movie on that platform and you start to go, oh, okay, this is a legit thing. And then the freaking pandemic hits and it turns out everybody is trapped in their homes watching Netflix. So it gets numbers like nobody's ever seen because, you know, that's what people have. So mixed <laughs> curse, blessing, whatever. It worked out well for Netflix's you, bottom line. Were you guys going to get a theatrical release? No, uh, I don't think like that limited? was ever. I think the most this project would have had from the time they started telling me Hemsworth, they were always saying Netflix. Okay. So I think it might have had um, one of those, you know, premieres and a week run in Hollywood or something to make it eligible for whatever. But I don't think there was ever a real theatrical. They signed a deal with Netflix and that's who was writing the checks. So there was that's that was their home. And at one point, you know, because everybody was trapped at home, I think in the first month, 90 million households downloaded that thing or streamed it. <laughs> Man. And so I flashed back to 12 years ago, sitting in a room with these guys, tossing out ideas and then do the math on people per household, like a quarter of a billion people got exposed to those ideas. And it's insane. You see why people are so anxious, you know, comic books in a way are a less heartbreaking medium because they, people might invest tens of thousands of dollars in making a comic book. Obviously you're invested. I think they spent 75 million, something like that on extraction. So the stakes are a lot higher and it's it's more heartbreaking. It's more convoluted. It's harder to get there. But Jesus, a quarter of a billion people getting exposed to the things that you thought of is a pretty heady drug. I mean, Did you sell any books after that? <laughs> <laughs> oh. So it's out of print and the rights, oh, no. the rights are convoluted. So oh. I was able, the publisher graciously sent me everything they had on hand and I was able to sell some through my website, but we can't sell a ton of them. Yeah. It's convoluted. <laughs> At one point, uh, Oni Press, the publisher, had a deal with a Hollywood division, closed on Mondays. And at one point, they had a divorce. And uh, so things got messy. So Ah, that's yeah. brutal. Yeah. <laughs> so it goes. Uh, but again, like the mixed, you know, uh, Netflix thing, if I had books in my basement, if I had invested, like, I'm going to buy 500 of these books, I'm going to sell these like hotcakes. I would only have a website business. I can't go out to conventions and, you know, press the flesh right. and sell them that way. Right. So it's a weird world. It really is. That's wild. Well, I'm glad it's turned out the way that it has. That's pretty exciting. Yeah. And I'm just trying, um, just trying to get my foot in the door, use this to, you know, I'm finally going to write a screenplay, Mitch. You've been talking to me about that forever. <laughs> I'm going to try that. I watched Get Shorty, so I have Delroy Lindo's speech about what it takes to write a screenplay fresh in my head. <laughs> you, just, you just have somebody go in and fill in the commas and shit. Yeah. And sometimes you yeah. don't even need that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I suppose we should return to the lobby of uh, James Bond's hotel yeah. as he comes back in. I, I, I just wanted to reiterate kind of what we were talking about last episode which is that if you can show a set lit two different ways it doubles the production value and so we have the lobby here at a at a different we saw it at night first and now we're seeing it during the day i believe so that's a a new way of seeing the space and 
and and as you said, there's a guy with keys and yeah. there's a guy with messages and all sorts and of stuff. And a little bank of hotel phones ready to, yeah. It's a, just it's ready amazing. for you. Yeah. It's just luxury. It's wonderful. So he, he, Bond gets a note that he's being invited up to Miss Taro's place. And we cut to Miss Taro. So we see something that Bond doesn't see. So we're ahead of him. And is it just me or is there something just sort of like she jumps on the bed and you can see her underwear and she rolls around on the I mean is Emma is it just me or is this she, sort of you don't just salacious see her. it's a little salacious I don't know about this maneuver because you don't just see her underwear she opens her little robe a little bit as she kneels down on the bed to show her underwear now I don't know is I, I don't wear clothes like that um, so I don't know <laughs> if that's a natural move if you're getting into that position I don't know but it seemed to me I was like did they direct her to open up the robe there? That seemed a little... It's hard to say. It could go either way, really. I'm not saying that they did. It's, I would say yes. I would say that's exactly what they did. I, I, it's I, a bizarre It, it feels move. to me that it's a very straight-up salacious move. We're going to get away with, with this. We can do it. We can you know, show a lady in her underwear and in Technicolor and let us sort of... I like know, to think at her. that she was just really into her part inside the movie not the actress's part but her character's part because in her mind she's never going to get bond to her house so she's mm -hmm. putting on all this uh sensuality just to be convincing on the phone to get him up so he can die on the road to her place she didn't care if he ever gets there it's true yeah she's, she's, true. she's laying on and, the seduction over the phone and then the seduction she lays on on the phone comes back around on her yeah. that's that we're not on those minutes yet but right. It gives a uh, it gives Bond a carte blanche that uh, back into that unfortunate <laughs> territory. But we'll talk about that. To, we'll right. talk about did, that next. Did week. you did you notice the camera shadow as the camera pushes in yeah, but, on her and and she's sort of upside down on the phone? If oh you look no! On the left on the left side of the frame, you'll see yeah. just about down in the corner. Oh wow! The the shadow of the camera moves into the shot, and they. Uh, yeah, I think you're just catching. It almost looks like you're catching the lens. Just the. Shadow yes, of the, the lens. Box. Oh, I yeah, love these yeah. things you see that I would never notice. That's funny. And is that a kind you think you think they see that in dailies and go, oh hell with it. Somebody sees Maybe. that, we got bigger trouble. Yeah, I guess they could have reshot if they thought it necessary, but it's pretty minor. It's a slightly complicated camera move too. I mean, I'm sure the setup and everything would have been. It was a one. Was it a oneer? She comes from the chair all the way over. Yeah, to the it's bed. a one. So that's a complicated. It's pretty impressive. Yeah. Yeah, that's a complicated camera move. So I don't. I think you go. Eh. I think that's your first right. move is to say, eh, I don't think it's going to be a problem. I always think of yeah. uh, Kevin Smith's moment in uh, Chasing Amy, the climactic scene where they have their big romantic confrontation on the street. They realized in dailies that you can see the reflection of the camera uh, on a storefront behind them. It's night, raining, I think. And they're like, oh, shit, we got to redo this. And Kevin said, this is the emotional climax of the film. If people are staring at the reflection in the window behind them, we got way bigger problems than, than that technical issue because they're yeah. not invested in the movie. So the hell with it. Let's go. Yeah, it's totally true. I think that's a that's a pretty standard way of looking at things. Yeah. And Scorsese's films are filled with mismatches and I was just you know, going to say always going for whatever he thinks is the emotional heart of the scene. And if that that should be what we're paying attention to. Well, you had that full on camera bump in Casino. And Sharon Stone, it's one of the Sharon Stone's big moments in the movie. And she's really putting it out, all out on, on 
screen there and somebody bumps the camera and it's like really obvious it doesn't right. it doesn't come off as an effect at all it very clearly somebody hit that camera but it was just too good of a take and he said yeah i'm not going to worry about it i mean there could be you could argue that it gives some sort of immediacy to it too but it doesn't really play that way it actually plays like an accident right. but maybe he's right maybe he's never going to get an, another take like that so again who's going to notice that i don't think i noticed it until i heard about it so so, you know, when she's talking on the phone, I don't know whether this is that big of a deal, but or whether it's sort of happens in 50s film noir. But there's a really interesting thing going on with the temporal state. Like she's giving him instructions, but we're, we're cutting ahead in time to him driving yeah, like with that. her voice over it, telling her where to go. And it just seems like a very modern touch to me. But am I John? Did it strike you as modern or did it seem like old, old fashioned? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it doesn't seem old-fashioned, but I don't know if it would strike me as modern because it seems natural to me. But maybe it's the modernity. Like, I'm used to it, so that's why it's natural to me. I don't know. It makes sense to me. Like, a lot of times now we, you get intercuts instead. Well, you'll get Bond would be driving, and then, and then you would cut back to her giving the instructions or something like that as opposed to the dissolve. But um, in that sense, maybe the dissolve is a little old-fashioned. But um, no, as far as the temporal relationship, I think it's it seems natural to me, but you're right. Before this, there wasn't a whole lot of it that I can no. think of. And it's a long dissolve, too. Yeah, super long dissolve. And it's a cool yep. shortcut in a movie that is often leisurely. It's, That's right. It's a way to, yeah. we don't need him walking to the damn car, or getting, you know, let's, let's move it along. And okay. we get to see that nice sunbeam that he's driving, yeah. beautiful convertible. You know, I might, I might guess, venture a guess that the, the decision to cut, like, right to him, not even cut to him, but get him on the road is because, man, that's how you might feel if uh, she's asking <laughs> you to come see her, you know? Like, it's... Be right up. <laughs> what, don't waste any time. Like, let's get in the car and get there as fast as we can. <laughs> What's the movie where there's a there's a joke like that where, um, like, just as they hang the phone up, there's oh, a knock that's, the that's an old joke. That's an yeah. old joke. I think that's been... <laughs> that's something you could have seen in Marx Brothers to Zucker Brothers to... Who knows? Yeah, yeah that's definitely... They're still on the phone when the person's at the door. Right. <laughs> there is one specific one I think you might be thinking of. I can't, uh, can't quite place it. I know what you mean. Well, this, um, this brings us to the end of our seven minutes. Andy, what do you think? So I, I got to admit, I was pretty pleasantly surprised. I've not never been a big Bond guy. I always found them a little dull. And there were times in the moment, in the movie yesterday watching with the wife. I thought, oh, this is draggy. Um, but I thought this little section worked pretty well. And over, like I said, I, I like the production. I like all the stuff. I like the hotel, the car, the clothes. It's lit beautifully. I like the colors. And that guy, you know, there are guys who, if they're on the screen, you want to look at them. And Sean is definitely one of those guys. So I was pretty impressed. I don't, maybe I'd take that. There have been three good Connery movies overall. If you put them all together instead of, instead of my two and a half. So I assume from Russia with love is in there mixed up with those. Yeah. Movies. I like bits of that. I, I tend to like the villain bits. I just want the villain taunting bond bashing him in the balls or cutting him with a laser. Or That's what I, I want that. Give me to that stuff. <laughs> yeah, I, I, right, I'm, fair enough. I'm with that. I, I tend to prefer the ones. Once the villain becomes more prominent or more um, detailed, like you're, it's Goldfinger, it's uh, Blofeld, and you get Donald Pleasant's playing Blofeld. I'll, that's where I am tuned in. 
And we're we're so far removed from this phenomenon now because the movies have become such a thing. Was were the novels in and of themselves an, an international sensation? They were becoming increasingly popular around the time that this movie got made. Um, they because Kennedy had put From Russia with Love on his list of favorite books, uh. so that gave it a little extra oomph. And it's kind of the perfect movie being made at the perfect time. Uh, because they'd been trying to make it prior to that, and it, it hadn't happened. And I really wonder whether if it hadn't gotten made within these couple of years, whether its time would have passed and right. it would not maybe have ignited the same way. So but you're, who knows? you're saying Kennedy was a fan of the international man of action who slept with everybody in sight. That spoke to <laughs> Kennedy? It was a. It was clearly an, an unsatisfied fantasy of his. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Andy, are you? Is there anything we can look for that, that's that's out there that's so, is in print? Or? No, I, not especially. I mean, there are things you can get. You can always get my Green Arrow stuff that you've worked on. Those are kept in print. Um, I'm working on a book for Dark Horse as an artist now, but like a lot of publications these days, it's slowed down to you know a couple pages a week. So it may be a while. I would say if people want to look for me, I have a Patreon where I'm writing a. Um, a novel, a couple hundred words at a time, just trying to put a couple hundred words every morning out there. And it's set in Kansas City in 39, and it features a kind of a muscle character named Estes Hightower, who's a Native American, enormous guy who works for a local mobster kind of figure who's looking to pick up the slack from Pendergast going away. So that's on my Patreon. And then if you want to find me on Twitter and such, it's all because my name is spelled funny, because my name is A-N-D-E, uh, you can find me on all platforms by that name, Andy Parks. Great. Right. Well, thank you. Yeah. I hope uh, maybe we can talk you into, why don't you go read From Russia with Love? Okay. And then if you decide that it's worth like a conversation, then you can come back on the next movie. Good. So you guys plan to do these for a while? Uh, until we get tired of it. Okay. Yeah, I think my, I or think until people get tired of us, one <laughs> or the other. My friend Joe was on last week, and he might have put it the best, or at the very least doing all the Peter Hunt stuff the editor and then director of honor majesty secret service right. we're at least doing all those and if we can if we can find it within ourselves to do diamonds are forever oh, i don't know though but we'll <laughs> see all right good well i'd love to come back it was really fun yeah good yeah, talking thanks to you for coming on of course you can uh we also have a patreon alien uh, patreon.com forward slash alien minutes you can find us over there we'll have some um, different kinds of content over there James Bond related, alien related maybe otherwise miscellaneous movies that we cover and do commentaries on um, I haven't mentioned we are also on Twitter at uh, 007 by 7 podcasts on Twitter and uh, come over to our Facebook page it's, a, it's up and running and uh, we're having lively conversation over there so come over and tell us what we're doing wrong or uh, give us the praise we deserve for doing such a great show I don't know about that part. But anyway, uh, thanks a lot for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye, everybody. Bye.